I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. Folks, these are, these are wolves. Truth be told, I, I oftentimes lay awake at night trying to figure out how I can get rid of wolves in the church. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Reformanda Radio, you know. We are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you when men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. All right, I want to welcome everybody to the show. This is Semper Reformanda Radio, and my name is Tim Shaughnessy. Not to be confused with Tim Hurd or Tim Kaufman, both uh, very recognizable names on the Bible Thumping Wingnet Network. I am going to be hosting an interview today, and Carlos Montijo and Joe Lanza were supposed to be here. I don't know. Uh, we, we set a time. I don't know what, what has transpired. I can't get a hold of either of them. But I'm just letting you know they may pop in to participate in this uh, interview slash discussion. And so if they do, that would be great. If they don't, uh, then we'll just move forward. But very excited about today's guest. We've known him for a long time. We've, uh, we've interacted with him for a long time. And this is the first time that he's been on our show. And uh, he is a, a, a solid brother in, in the Lord. And he's also a Clarkian. So very excited for that reason. Uh, so let me just go ahead and give an opportunity for our guests to say hello. And I want to welcome to the show, Jason Peterson. Thanks, Tim. I'm honored to be here. Well, Jason does, he has a ministry, and I want to draw some attention to the ministry. So Jason, what is, you have a website, you write quite a bit for the website, and you know, I was, I was actually looking at it right now. Uh, it looks like you've revamped the website, and it looks pretty good. I, I've got to say, I like the, the format. It's rabidclarkian.com is the URL, and the name of the website is the Rabid Clarkian blog. So Jason, tell us a little bit about your ministry, what your focus is, and uh, what your area of expertise is, and what you try to uh, what you try to put out on your website. Sure. First off, I'd like to start off by giving my testimony, because not everybody knows about it. So basically, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up as a, as a, a, a Southern Baptist and was also, and also went to uh, uh, Independent Baptist Church as well. My uh, parents really pushed me to go in the church. I accept. I uh, prayed the sinner's prayer at the age of, of nine, um, and uh, at that point, I was I was uh, I felt assured of my salvation. Um, although now I do not really condone the sinner's prayer because I think it, it brings about the danger of someone face placing their faith in the prayer they said instead of in Christ Himself. 
Uh, but I did pray that prayer, and that's whenever I started identifying myself as a Christian. Uh, so I was raised uh, and brought up on biblical principles by my parents. Um, I was a very uh, calm kid. I didn't get in a lot of trouble. My sister's a different story, but I, I didn't get in a lot of trouble. Um, I didn't ever get written up at school. I uh, didn't really, I rarely got in trouble with my parents. And it was even rare that I got in big enough trouble with my parents to be grounded or, or something like that. And, um, you know, I like to think that I, I uh, behave fairly well. When I got older in my early 20s, I, I uh, kind of started drifting away from the faith a bit. I had a lot of doubts. A lot of it was due to how I saw Christians acting. You know, people who identified as Christians seeing how they acted. Um, I always knew deep down that there, that uh, the Christian God was was real, but I tried to ignore him for a while. I even was still going to church, but even, but deep down, you know, I was playing the orchestra, but deep down I had a lot of, of doubts about my faith. Well, this all turned around uh, in 2010 whenever I was uh, diagnosed with uh, cancer. I had uh, cancer in my eye. It was called ocular melanoma. I had no idea that it was even possible to have cancer in your eye up until that point. Obviously, it was a pretty big shock to me. I wasn't exactly sure what was going to happen. Um, I've heard, you know, I've, I've known a lot of people who have died of cancer. Um, the doctor did say that it is possible it did spread. He didn't know if it did spread, but he said it could spread. But commonly, when it does spread, it spreads somewhere like to the brain. Um, so it was a pretty scary thing. I went to UAB and uh, was uh, had surgery on my eye by a doctor uh, named Dr. Callahan. When I was in the waiting room for the first appointment, I was reading in a book called Creationist Astronomy by Donald DeYoung. And I was reading this stuff and I was just, you know, and I, I was just amazed. And I was really, I was looking at this stuff already. You know, when I found out that I was, you know, when I was facing my mortality, I started thinking about the big questions in life and I started want, seeking answers for it. But I was reading this book and I thought, man, this is, I said, I have, I'm facing my mortality and I know I have, I have repented of, and I have come back to the flock. And I knew that my salvation was assured, but there are other people that face my situation. They don't have this hope that I have. And then that really, that was like the first time I really considered, you know, going out and, and you know, doing ministry and apologetics. So um, I started getting into William Lane Craig. I was very encouraged by the arguments he offered at the time. And it just really helped bolster my faith even further. And then later on, I ran into um, an interview between Eric Coven and Sides and Bruggen Kate. And then uh, I was listening to them talk and he was talking about how, some Christians uh, put the Bible on trial, and I and and I was like, yes, that's true. And he was talking about how we needed to stand on the authority of Scripture. I agreed with that emphatically, and so I sort of became a uh, presuppositional apologist. Shortly thereafter, I became a Reformed Baptist, and then I later became a Presbyterian. So it kind of really led me towards a Reformed faith. Now, at this point, of course, I and I have some disagreements, but we are friends, uh, and we do talk on occasion. We're both pretty busy people, uh, but. That's kind of how I got pushed into the destruction. And in 2013, I started a ministry called Answers for Hope. And actually, uh, the website, answersforhope.org, it is still there. It is a website. At first, it was a website where I just posted. It was like a blog. I posted something. And I actually, I posted frequently. I posted every day. But later on, I started another website, which is the Rabbit Clarkian blog. And uh, recently, I redid answersforhope.org, and I made it to where it's a question and answer site only. That means that right now, all I do is respond to questions that are sent to me via email, and I post it on there. I try and post once a week, but I don't always get to do so due to time constraints. The Rabbit Clarkin blog is more for me interacting with other people. Also, it's for me ranting, and sometimes my sarcasm comes out in uh, some of those articles whenever I'm talking about things like uh, gender identity and, and what have you, uh, and politics. And 
so that one's more of an informal website uh, where I just kind of say what's on my mind. And I have a third website called uh, the Christians Investors Club. And the website is ChristianInvestorClub.org. I do post less frequently on that because it's not really a primary ministry. It's more of a secondary thing. Uh, and there I teach Christians how to invest in uh, cash flow in um, investments that produce cash flow and how to handle their finances better. So those are right now I have three ministries and that is that is uh, all three. Well, that's awesome. I, I actually didn't know that you had the third ministry, and I wasn't sure if Answers for Hope was still active. So Answers for Hope is the one where you, you tackle questions that people send you? Yes, and actually I have, an interesting, I have some interesting questions coming up answering, such as how it's possible for Jesus to be both God and man. You know, so like questions about the hypostatic union, and that's been a big problem for the church. And Gordon Clark tried to address it, but unfortunately, he didn't. He didn't get to finish it before he passed away. So um, I, I still think that the question that there's still a, there's still an issue with that uh, that I plan to address um, in my dissertation whenever I whenever I finish my PhD at Whitfield. I'm definitely looking forward to that. I know uh, Carlos Montijo is actually also working through that. And it is a very complicated issue. But let me let me go ahead and do this. Let me draw some attention to that. So if if our listeners want to send you a question, where do they send it? On answershow.org, I have a, for, a contact form. You'll see where uh, it says ask a question. You can click on that. There's a form that you can fill out that will send an email directly to uh, my, to the e- ministry email address, which is answershowhope at gmail.com. You can also uh, email directly at answerhope uh, at gmail.com. I do occasionally get scoffers that try and email me, and then I'll decide whether I want to respond to it publicly, privately, or if I want to even respond at all. But I do also get a lot of questions from Christians. And uh, there's a variety of issues that come up, and there's sometimes, you know, a question comes up, and I go, well, I haven't really thought of it. I uh, recently had a question about whether there was a distinction between adultery and fornication. I never really thought about it before. So I had to go and do it. I went and I took about a month to study it before I answered the question. Uh, so sometimes I don't know the answer and I go and I try and find out if I don't feel I can answer it after I do my research. I, I just tell them that I'm, I probably wouldn't be of much benefit if I did answer it uh, and maybe refer them to someone who's more of an expert on it. If I am able to answer it, then I'll go ahead and, and uh, post it on the website. I typically only post the first name of the person. I don't post their last name because I don't know if they really want everybody to know exactly who it is that's, that's uh, asking the question. So as a result, sometimes I'll have like a bunch of questions. Like, for instance, I had a, the question I had about uh, adultery was from, from a, a guy named David. And now I have another guy named David who's asked me different questions. And some people may be led to believe that a lot of these people are the same, but they're usually not. Well, I really appreciate the spirit in which you're wanting to address these issues, because I think that a lot of times uh, when we put ourselves out there, we're doing podcasts, uh, there can be a temptation to want to be an expert in every area. <laughs> and uh, I think that uh, we are supposed to be a part of a body of Christ. We're supposed to be, well, we are a part of the body of Christ, which is the church, but we're supposed to interact in that way. And so there's a lot of areas that I'm not an expert in. And so I have to defer to somebody else who might be an expert in that area. So I definitely appreciate the attitude with which you're you're operating yourself in. Um, okay. I got to ask you this, the Rabid Clarkian, how did you come up with that name for your, your blog, Rabid Clarkian? Sia has jokingly called me a Rabid Clarkian repeatedly, and I sort of just adopted it. It's kind of funny. Um, some people ask me, What's the, what do you mean by rabbit? And I go, well, I guess uh, I'm sarcastic. I'm very opinionated. You know, so that's kind of, so I thought that's, that, that's what it means to be rabid 
in that in that website is I'm just opinionated and I'm sarcastic. Okay, so we've we've got to talk about something, and uh, let's just get it out of the way. We've had we've had a long history um, in the ether of Facebook and the internet, and um, I would like to just throw this out there: is that we've had our disagreements in the past, and we've been able to reconcile, obviously by the grace of God. Uh, we're we're friends. I, I would actually count you among friends, but let's just go ahead and bury the hatchet with regards to the conflict that we had. Uh, I'll give you an opportunity to give a little bit of a backstory. I believe it was about a year and a half ago. And the reason that we need to bring this up is because we actually have written an article that had your name in it and we uh, referenced a disagreement that we had. So let me give you an opportunity to give some of the backstory and I'll just, I'll let you take it. Sure. Um, I'm a student of Dr. Talbot. And uh, he's a former, he was a student of Gordon Clark. And uh, I uh, also am, you know quite a few of Dr. Clark's former students, uh, Dr. Kaiser, for Kaiser, for instance, and uh, Dr. Bill Higgins. So I do know, I do know a few of those students. I have been in correspondence with Gary Crampton uh, recently about an academic paper that I wrote. We've been going back and forth because we had some, we had some agreements, disagreements, and some things that he thought uh, should be clarified. Um, so I have had correspondence with, with numerous people. Now, the way this started, and I'll be completely transparent here, the good and the bad and everything. I was a part of a group called the um, Gordon H. Clark Discussions Group on Facebook. Um, anyone who uh, isn't a part of the group that's interested in Clark, I highly recommend you join it. There are a lot of really knowledgeable people there. Um, I don't agree with everyone there. I don't agree with everybody's interpretation of Clark there. But if you want exposure to a lot of people who, who uh, are interested in Gordon Clark, that is the best place on Facebook to go to. There is another group too um, called the Gordon Clark Discussion Group. That was not quite as busy, but there are knowledgeable people there as well that are not a part of the Gordon H. Clark Discussion Groups for um, for uh, you know various reasons. We all have our preferences about how groups should be ran and everything. Um, this all started whenever I had blocked someone because they really got on my nerves. I just felt like they were wasting my time and I felt like they were a nuisance. I blocked them. Now, this was apparently against the rules of the group. Uh, and I refuse to block them. And I actually, I threatened to leave multiple times. And I, I'm, I'm not saying I, I shouldn't have threatened. I should have just left. I shouldn't just made it. I shouldn't have made a big scene about it. But that's what I did. I made a big scene about it, and I made a final post saying that I'm leaving because I don't agree with this rule after everyone voted on it and kind of decided to keep it. So I left the group. I thought it was the best thing to do because uh, I don't want to stay there and keep arguing with people about how the rules should be, especially when it's not my group in the first place. Um, I went and I started a group with Dr. Talbot and some other students of Gordon Clark called uh, Clarkian Apologetics Group. And I, and I used the term Clarkian Apologetics for the group because there wasn't really a group that really had that title. So I thought it'd be really easy for people to find. I would imagine that anyone who tried to search for Clarkian Apologetics would use, those use Clarkian Apologetics as the term that they look for. So that's why I named the group that. Dr. Talbot was an admin and I had some other students of, uh, um, in there. I think Kenneth Gentry was in the group too, although he's not Clarkian. I think he was a part of the group though. Um, the purpose of that group, as, as Dr. Tao and I agreed on, was just to educate people on Gordon Clark. The problem was, was that uh, we kind of wanted it to be a, a place where we where people can come and ask questions. We didn't really want people going with us back and forth because we just really we didn't we didn't really want to spend a lot of time arguing on social media. Um, I don't know how Dr. Talbot feels about this, but I don't think we handled it very well. Um, 
we had, uh, you know, people like Tim came on and had some disagreements. Uh, Luke Miner had some disagreements. So we just, and we responded by eventually banning them all. I mean, any dissenter, basically, we uh, we kicked out of the group, uh, you know, and because we just thought, you know, it was rude for like, if you're teaching a classroom for like somebody to come in and just start trying to take over the class. That's how we felt about it at the time. Um, I uh, I told Luke Miner that he was not a clerk, and I shouldn't have said that uh, because, you know, of his, his definition of, of knowledge. I didn't agree with it. Um, and some other things. So it was a really, it was a really nasty situation. Uh, and it really, it was, it was stressful because I had so many people, you know, um, going at me. So I got really defensive and I, you know, and I talked back, I said some things I shouldn't have. I think, I think the others on the earth side, I'm not going to go into specifics. I don't want to start anything, but I think some other people that respond to me didn't say some things they shouldn't have. So it was really just a, it was just a very terrible thing. Um, that happened. Uh, so, um, you know, and I regret it. I, you know, I hate that I, I said those things. I, you know, I hate that I keep them off the page. What we should have done was just let people give their opinion and just not respond to it and just let it stand. That's what we should have done, in my opinion. So uh, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, I think, uh, people that were mad at the Gordon Clark group that were talking about our group, you know, um, maybe, maybe to them, it looked almost like a cult because we were kicking people out that disagreed with us. Um, you know, but it is our group. We have a right to do that, but I just don't, you know, looking back, you know, they say hindsight's twenty twenty. I don't agree at all with, you know, with what, how I handled it before. And I'm very regretful of that. Um, I also brought up an issue in the group about uh, Gordon Clark's definition of saving faith. And um, this caused some disagreement. And I also mentioned uh, in the group that Dr. Robbins had had edited uh, Dr. Clark's book. So that Dr. said the books that you get from the Trinity Foundation may not necessarily reflect what what the uh what gordon clark actually wrote now um i will say this um from what i understand for dr talbot gordon clark when he wrote he was he uh was very technical in his in his writings uh so uh and dr robbins helped uh helped him you know i'm not saying dr robbins came and completely changed it but he did help edit clark's works you know uh, clark trusted him and dr robbins did edit you know clark's works you know having footnotes in and everything to clarify some things he said and things like that but i but the way i said it and what i understand for dr tal at the time was that dr robbins had uh, actually taken clark's book on saving faith and rewrote it to where it agrees with them with dr robbins view because he had a little bit of a different view of justification than clark did uh you know and i said that and it turns out what i said was not really accurate i misunderstood what dr talbot said um, Dr. Robbins did have a disagreement with Clark on saving faith, but he did not actually change what Dr. Clark said in the book to reflect uh, his own position. Uh, that was false, and I've taken responsibility for that, um, for being careless and not really asking enough questions before going and bringing a bombshell like that out there. Um, that was one of the big disagreements, and I think that was one of the most contentious disagreements that, that we all had was, was the issue of Dr. Robbins and the Trinity Foundation. And I've expressed, I've expressed uh, regret over that. Um, you know, and I think we all have some regret about at least how the situation was handled. Um, but that, but uh, there were some articles back and forth. There was a lengthy, there was a fairly lengthy article that Luke Miner and CJ uh, wrote uh, towards me. Um, Tim and Carlos had written something towards me. Um, Sean Jarity made some comments, um, and I looked at it and I was going to write a response to everything, but then I just finally said, "I'm just going to, I'm just going to let it go because I just didn't feel like going, um, you know, back and forth with everybody." But later on, you know, um, as uh, you know, people cool off um, as time passes, and and uh, really, um, you know, there was a time, uh, Tim. I think it was you and Carlos, right? I just hung up on y'all during a conversation. Uh, I just hung up. Didn't even tell you guys that I hung up. You know, yeah. I think you remember that. Yeah, you hung up uh, on me. <laughs> yeah, so um, it was a, so it was a very tense. You know, it was a very tense thing. Uh, and it was know. it was over the uh, it was over the 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 comments with regards to um, 
to John Robbins. And I, I do remember, as a matter of fact, the reason that we uh, we stepped in was because you had said that uh, Luke Miner wasn't a um, Clarkian, and then that's when we stepped in. And then with uh, with respect to the issues about um, the editing that John Robbins did and the Trinity Foundation. And, um, you know, I haven't talked to Dr. Talbot in years. Um, I do remember that when I did speak to Dr. Talbot, he had told me that there's there's Clark and then there's Robbins's uh, version of Clark and that I needed to be careful with the Trinity Foundation. And I found that to be a little bit discouraging. I, you know, I don't know where he's at with that. Um, I can't represent his views now or currently, you know, and my hope is that uh, because he's he has said some some disparaging things on uh, Facebook with regards to Dr. Robbins. I, I don't know why there would be, um, you know, I, I think that he probably didn't appreciate uh, Robbins's polemics because Robbins was very polemical. But, you know, I hope that uh, whatever grievances he might have had with Robbins, uh, I, I hope that, that he's been able to resolve that. You, you know, the 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 main thing that that I want to to get at here is that I think that we've been able to reconcile because, like you said, enough time had passed. You know, they, they say cooler heads prevail, and I, I think that you know, whenever we go to Clark, if we if we disagree about uh, something that Clark had said, uh, we we think that um, you know Clark meant this when another person thinks that we meant that. I think that we can just come to the table as brothers and say, you know, this is what I see. And, you know, this isn't something that we should divide over. And I think that that's probably where you're at as well right now. Am I correct in in saying that? Yes. Even if we may have disagreements, I think that we all do enough good to where we should just focus on working together instead of trying to argue and just maybe state our conditions and let other people figure out which one they want to take. Yeah, I definitely agree. And so... Just for clarity's sake, you no longer believe that Robbins edited Clark's work in a way that would misrepresent Clark or in a way that would change what Clark had initially uh, written. Am I correct? Yes, you're correct on that. Like I said, I had misunderstood what Dr. Talbot said, and that's why I had said what I said. And it really, I really stepped in it uh, whenever I had said that. So I, I spoke too soon without asking enough questions. So that's how that got started. Yeah, and that's actually the point when uh, when I got kicked out of uh, out of the Clarkian group because I had actually challenged that. And then you know I don't remember if it was you that reached out to me or if it was me that reached out to you. But all I can say is I'm grateful that we're now talking. Things are good. And so for the remainder of this podcast, what I want to do is I want to promote your book and say congratulations on uh, actually publishing a book because I haven't done that. I'm, I'm hoping to in the future. I hope that if I do in the future that people will read it and buy it. But um, you, you recently published a book and it is geared towards Clarkian apologetics and it's uh, apologetics made simple, five keys to an unstoppable apologetic. So what inspired you to write this book? And what is the main thrust of the book? Well, God has blessed the church with a long line of gifted theologians and philosophers throughout the history of Christianity. Um, I really believe that a lot that uh, most of the uh, objections to Christianity have been sufficiently uh, 
answered. I think the only one that there could be any argument about is that maybe the church does not still quite, as a whole, still does not quite understand the hypostatic union. Um, I believe that it's resolvable. I actually do have a solution of mine. I'm not going to share it right now because it's in its infancy. Uh, but it maybe you know, if Carla speaks to me too, that'd be great because it'd be a lot less work for me. That, that is a tough issue to tackle. Um, there's a lot of terms that need to be defined. Um, and I think that's where the problem goes with the hypostatic union is just the terms that the church has used throughout its history. And, uh, um, but, uh, you know, so I really, I felt that, um, I don't, you know, I, I haven't been in, in very good health over the past couple of years. I really, you know, I, I really thought, you know, I don't really know how long I'm going to be here. So if I'm going to publish something, I want it to be the most, I think, most beneficial book that I can publish. Now, um, this is my first book, so I made it short because I really wasn't sure. I, you know, the editing and, and the formatting, I didn't want to deal with a 300-page book uh, for the first time trying to get all that stuff done. Um, fortunately for me, when I uh, when I was working on the cover, uh, Fred Beal had saw what I was doing. And Fred Beal is a, is a Vantillian, um, a very good guy. We're very good friends. Uh, he actually helped design the cover of this book for me, even though I'm Clarkian. He's a, and he's a Vantillian. He actually helped me with, with this book. He helped format the book for me. He just really made the process easier uh, for me, and I definitely appreciate him for that. Uh, he's actually working on his own book on the Trinity, uh, and I'm really looking forward to reading that because um, I think he's really – I think Vantill has some some good ideas, and I, and I, I am confident uh, that Fred Deal will uh, will continue to – will build on the good things that Vantill has said. Um, you know, uh, while, uh, you know, um, maybe filtering out some of the things that weren't so good. Um, so, um, but that aside, uh, what led me to write this book? There was a couple of things I took into consideration. Um, the first one was how much of a benefit it would be if I were, if I were to um, not make it to next year or something, would I have, would I be leaving something behind that, that, uh, that someone could use? And one of the things I see whenever I watch debates between atheists and Christians and the average Christian. There are a lot of things at play in the discussion that goes unnoticed by both sides, such as definitions of terms. And for the Christian, you know, when to walk away uh, from a discussion instead of wasting your time beating your head against a brick wall. Systemizing the apologetic and the worldview that, that, that the Christian is, is uh, constructing. Um, the philosophy of language is a big issue that I think a lot of people don't understand. I have found that a lot of people tend to take very uncharitable representations of the other position in order to make theirs look better. Uh, I mean, you see this more on the atheist side than the Christian side, in my opinion. I, I see a lot more coming from them. And then also, uh, you know, being able to do apologetic in a way that is that is consistent with how Jesus Christ would have done it. So, uh, you know, so that this is what I had written about. And I give I give five keys to um, how to engage a discussion. Now, this book isn't really about responding to any particular argument. I think Christians have done a great job of addressing a lot of the arguments already. I didn't, you know, so I'll wait for, and do my own version of those kind of books later uh, after I, you know, but what I really want to get out there is I want to teach the person how the, the you know, these, these five things that will really make defending the faith easier for them. Um, if you follow these things and if you really pay attention to them, uh, you will find that it's, that the atheists will have a, a significantly harder time dealing with you. People can listen to some of my more recent debates after I had become more seasoned and more uh, in line with, uh, you know, with uh, Clark's philosophy. Uh, they can look at my writings. You know, I, I utilize all these principles in my apologetic. And I am convinced that anyone who follows these principles, um, regardless of their apologetic methodology, uh, will have an apologetic that is impossible to counter. So some of the things I emphasize is first is dogmatism, which base, which is basically 
what I cover is that there's no such thing as neutrality. You've heard you've heard Dr. Bonson, I think is a great a great quote. There's two things you need to know about neutrality. First, they aren't and you shouldn't be. That's a great quote from Dr. Yeah, Bonson. And, um, oh, and I actually like that you did that. I, I like that, that you quoted Bonson favorably. In one of my recent articles on uh, the scripturalist ad hominem reply, I quote Bonson favorably as well. Because while as a Clarkian, I do have disagreements with Bonson, and I know that Bonson wrote against Clark and uh, had some disagreements with Clark, we would certainly want to... Uh, you know, where, where these guys said something good, let's, let's acknowledge it. So, I mean, I appreciate that, you know, that was a really good point that Bonson made about neutrality. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I, I don't want to give away the whole book, but, you know, I wanted to, just for illustration, I wanted to ask you about dogmatism because I, I see what you're doing. You're giving people a foundation for how they should approach the debate rather than just giving them you know, here's an argument, here's, you know, here's a response. You're giving them the mindset that they should have with how to approach the debate. And I thought that this was really important. I thought the the chapter on dogmatism was actually very insightful. And let, let me say, the, the book is small, but I thought it was very well written, and I thought it had some really good information. So if you if you have an opportunity, I definitely would recommend our listeners to check it out because dogmatism. Let's dive into that a little bit, because I think that a lot of people out there have the view of Christians as your dogmatist, but we're not. We come to the table, uh, like you said, neutral, following the evidence wherever it leads. And one of the things that, that you have in here is everyone is a dogmatist. So I want to give you an opportunity to explain to our listeners what that means. What do you mean by everybody's a dogmatist? Like how can a scientist who is coming to the table, uh, neutral, he's allowing the evidence to speak for itself. He's, he's allowing uh, the evidence to, to guide him and direct him. He's not a dogmatist. The, the Christian is the dogmatist and they're stuck in their ways. You make the point that even he is a dogmatist. So I want to give you an opportunity to explain to our listeners what you mean. And then that way it'll give them a, a little bit of insight into what the book contains. Sure. So when you look at the history of philosophy, you will find that there are philosophers that come in and they, and it's very clear that they have specific goals. And this is true for Christians and non-Christians. Um, for instance, Immanuel Kant wanted to save empiricism from the, the devastating critiques of David Hume. Um, so, Anytime someone enters a discussion, it, it is impossible to enter a discussion unless you want to comp accomplish something. Um, everybody has their goals that they want to accomplish, and they will try in and uh, in philosophy, and they'll and they'll try and, and raise whatever arguments they can to reach to reach that conclusion. No atheist goes into a debate with a Christian, you know, to actually challenge their beliefs without the intention of trying to show that they are correct. Uh, so the atheist goes in, he already believes he's correct. The Christian goes in, he already believes he already believes that he's correct. Um, as people that are not omniscient, the view, the view that we have of the world around us is affected by our assumptions. And everybody, if you make any argument, it is absolutely necessary that you have to start with something. As, as Dr. Clark has said, if you haven't, if you haven't started, you haven't begun. Um, and to give, a, to give a, an analogy, a NASCAR race, you can't finish a race unless you start it first. Right. Uh, Clark, Clark makes the point that every, every philosophy must have a first principle laid down dogmatically 
which cannot be proven but must first be assumed. Every worldview must have its uh, first principle or axiomatic starting point. And when, when we say that uh, every principle must be laid down dogmatically, is that what you mean by everybody at that point becomes a dogmatist? Yes, that is what I mean. Everybody has to start with an assumption. It's impossible to argue without starting with one if you're not on mission. You have to you have to start somewhere and assume it. And then if you think that you can prove your assumption, that means it's not an assumption. There's some another assumption that you're making in order to try and prove it. Um, it is impossible to to try and build a system of philosophy without starting with an axiom. Now, there is one thing that I want to cover too about that. The most common objection from atheists to Clarkian apologists is that an axiom is self-evidently true. And because a Bible is not self-evidently true, it cannot be an axiom. This goes into another part of my book, which I talk about the the philosophy of language and the, and the fact. And really, the truth is, is that a definition is just a description of, of, a, of a term. It just it's basically language conveys propositional meaning. Um, we can define terms any way we want to. And to say that we cannot define an axiom a certain way because there's a different definition, well, it makes the whole English language fall apart because it's not uncommon for an English word to have four or five different definitions. Um, the idea that we have to use only one definition of axiom uh, it, whenever we articulate our, our philosophy uh, is completely it's – com it's nothing more than special pleading because there's no reason to – to say that we have to define an axiom a certain way as opposed to defining a tree a certain way. There's multiple definitions of trees. We see them every day, and, every, and people use the term tree in different ways. So the most common objection to uh, laying out a case for dogmatism, we talk about an axiom, a first principle that we must start with. That's the most common objection, and that's how to respond to it. It just doesn't, it just doesn't jive with the way the English language works. Now, I will say this. If someone says that they do not start somewhere, if you keep – you know, what happens is if there's nowhere to start, that you're starting with assuming that it's true without being able to prove it there you have to keep you have to keep arguing for a proposition of the proposition as it gets swapped back and you end up with an infinite regress of propositions that the person has to argue for so basically they can't argue for them all uh so their their epistemology will collapse into skepticism the problem is um we recognize that we are dogmatists we as clarkians but other people don't recognize their dog their dogmatists you have to be able to show them that they're making assumptions they cannot prove and that's something that I cover in chapter one of um, of the book is is that why everyone's a dogmatist. And I even give I believe I give an example of a conversation between an atheist and a Christian that highlights that the atheist is although they're making very grandiose claims, they're making assumptions they cannot possibly prove. And because they're making those assumptions they can't prove, they are dogmatists. Yeah, you're you're bringing up some really good stuff. Uh, so the reason that everybody is required to have a first principle is because if you don't, then you'll fall into an infinite regress. And, and it's how do you know that A is true? Well, because of B. Well, how do you know that B is true? Well, because of C. And obviously, we could go on forever past, you know, the, the alphabet. We could just go on forever. And so that, that brings up another point is what about proof? Do you hold to the view that you can prove your first principle? Because I know that we're talking about apologetic methods here. The way that I see it, and you can tell me what you think, but the way that I see it is that if you're trying to prove your first principle, well, if everything has to be demonstrated, if everything requires a demonstration, you either fall into an infinite regress, as which you mentioned, or you fall into circular reasoning, and you're trying to prove the very thing that you have to assume. So 
when you point out that everybody's a dogmatist, does that mean that you cannot prove the thing that you are trying to assume? Sorry if you hear some snorting. Like, it's not a demon or anything. It's just my French bulldog. <laughs> um, so, right. um, so as far as as far as that goes, you know, as a dogmatist, um, I define dogmatism basically as as just a, a philosophical system that is predicated upon an assumption that cannot be demonstrated. When you talk about proof, um, whether or not you can prove your axiom, it depends on what you mean by proof. Um, by proof in a in a context of a of a assumption about you know a discussion about philosophical systems, I would define proof as something that is deduced by necessary consequence from an axiom or a theorem that's already deduced from the axiom. Uh, so I look at proof as a deduction that shows if, if one proposition is the case, the latter proposition must be true. To me, that, that is how I would, that is how I would uh, present a proof. Now, the whole thing is to, with, with respect to um, the, the uh, axiom in question, the Bible alone is the word of God, that, that's the uh, Clarkian axiom. Um, we cannot demonstrate that it's true, and the re and it's not because God has not revealed Himself sufficiently. The problem is, is that if we try and use other methods that that disregard the axiom in question, if you start it, if you start at another place, like let's say you try and approach it empirically or rationalistically, there are certain problems with those epistemologies, and it's not just in trying to prove the existence of God; it's in any claim that you try and prove with those methods whatsoever. Um, you will fail though you with those with those epistemology because of their inherent flaws. Your arguments will have holes in them that your opponent can tear apart. So can we prove our axiom? No. Now, um, can Christians know that the Bible owns the Word of God? I say yes because it's true, and knowledge is the possession of the truth. So I I say that yes, we can know it's true, and the reason why we know it's true is not only because God revealed in His Word, but there's a supernatural thing that happens whenever you are. When you come to faith in Christ, it's a, the the witness of the Holy Spirit. We have all these things that you know we have the Holy Spirit within us, uh, you know, that testify to us the truth of the Scriptures. So our belief in the Bible actually is something that you could say is is uh, supernatural. There's an element to it to where it's not just us. We didn't just come and and uh, by our own volition come to believe that the Bible is true. This is a truth that was given to us by God Almighty Himself. So can we know it's true? Yes, because God has told us so. Now, can we go and take the proposition and demonstrate it to another person uh, that it's true? No, we can't because we're starting with it. We can't argue in a circle and try and prove it. That's begging the question. And really, whenever you look at it, you know, um, you look at what Van Til said about uh, virtuously and viciously circular arguments. Now, I emphatically reject that distinction. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. I do, too. And the reason why is because even if you... Well, this this is the issue that I have with it, and you can tell me what you think. But when you say viciously circular, you're saying that there is a self-contradictory. So, like, empiricism is viciously circular because they're starting with a non-empirical knowledge claim of empiricism. But when you say that you can prove yours because it's not viciously circular, well, it's still fallaciously circular if you're trying to prove it. And that's the issue that I have with it. Um, what are you, What are your thoughts on that? Whenever you look at the distinction between um, viciously circular, vicious circularity and virtuous circularity, the problem that you get is whenever you say that someone begs the question, there is a there is a definition for begging the question, and I guess someone can redefine it if they want to, but typically they're not redefining it. They're using the step, the straight law definition that logicians usually logicians usually um, usually use. Um, but whenever you talk about putting, you know, you're putting an adjective vicious or, or virtuous in front of the uh, begging the question. The problem is, is that fallacies are determined by two things. Number one, their form, 
But number two, whether or not the premise in question actually necessarily leads to another proposition in a deductive argument. The problem we have here with this distinction is that the form of the argument is still the same. In logic, begging the question is considered an invalid form. If A, A. If B, B. You know, A is true, therefore A is true. Uh, that is that is circular. The form, even whenever you take what Van Tilian say makes the argument virtuously circular as opposed to viciously circular, you are, in fact, you're still using the same form or argument. Because it's the same form, it is still an invalid argument in logic, and it is a fallacy. Just putting an adjective in front of it and trying to make some qualifications does not solve the problem. In fact, it may very well induce other fallacies into, into the uh, discussion, such as, uh, such as special pleading, which is an informal fallacy. You're asking for special circumstances. Well, let me let me ask you let me ask you then. So, where does that put you with respect to the transcendental arguments or the tag that Van T that we see our Vantilian brothers use, and they say that they can prove well what what they often classify as an axiom. They well, let me let me see if I can say this differently. What they often say is an ultimate standard is what we would say is their first principle, and they just some of the 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 terminology that they use I think is a little bit different but they they say ultimate standard and we say first principle or axiom uh, but it's really the same thing where does that put you with respect to the transcendental argument how would you use it uh, do you think that the that the argument can be used to prove the Bible is true or to prove that God exists like like our, our brothers would say um, I would like to say that, um, and I don't cover this in my book because my book is solely about apologetic methodology. That's why it's so short. And the reason why I made it short was because a lot of people don't read the first chapter of books anyway, so I want to make it short enough to where people would be able to read it without thinking they're spending too much time on it. But um, that aside, as far as uh, the transitive argument goes, I'd like to say first, overall, and I, I know some Clarkings don't agree with me on this, um, I have an overall very positive view of Van Til. Although I have disagreements, Van Til did say a lot of really good things. Uh, Clark even described Van Til as mostly orthodox after the uh, after they had reconciled um, after the uh, the Gordon Clark Van Til uh, controversy. I really think, and it's my belief that it is time for uh, Clarkies and Van Tilians, even if we have our disagreements, to work together, reunite in the truth of Scripture and the truth in Christ, and just put that that ugly confrontation aside. It's over now. Both men have gone to glory, and um, we really, you know, when we're when we're bickering with each other all the time, it just really distracts from the sharing of the gospel that we should be doing. Although we do have some disagreements and some significant, you know, we are still brothers in Christ, and we ought to we ought to take both Clark and Van Til for the good things they said. And uh, you know, if we have disagreements, that's going to happen. There's always there's always going to be disagreements in the church. There's, you know, even Paul talks about uh, not getting involved in, in petty issues of, of disagreement. Uh, so, but, but, you know, the whole thing is, uh, you know, and I've been in court, I have been in correspondence, some, not extensive correspondence, mind you, but I have been in correspondence with Dr. Frames some too, and he agrees to, um, you know, one of Dr. Frames uh, goals was to try and, and help ease this rift a bit. Uh, he feels very strongly about it. I do too. Um, I hope that the younger generation that's coming in will be able to help mend those, those issues further. I think that the Gordon Clark Van Til controversy is one of the worst things that happened in recent church history. I think it was a terrible thing. I think there were things that were said on both sides that uh, that are regrettable. 
But nevertheless, um, regarding tag, it depends on what you mean by tag, because if you look at the blogs, especially in one issue is, is that a lot of people who are Vantillians don't really understand Vantill. Uh, they think they're Vantillians, but they actually have some disagreements. Um, so if you look at some blogs about tag, you'll actually see people lay out a syllogism for, uh, for it. Of common syllogism would be something along the line as, without God, there's no intelligible experience. There is intelligible experience. Therefore, God exists. You'll see, uh, you'll see syllogism like that. I've seen some constructed in a valid format. I've seen some constructed in an invalid format. But the point is, some people have actually tried to to make the tag argument into a syllogism. The problem with that is it misses the point of what Ventil was trying to say. What Ventil was trying to say was, in order to even argue against Christianity, you have to presuppose the implications of Christianity. God, according to Ventil, is the necessary uh, God's existence is the necessary precondition for intelligibility. Now, I don't like those terms. Uh, ex Pre-existing, I'm not entirely, it just, just seems like an awkward term to me. Um, I don't even like the word exist because it's a predicate that can follow any subject. It just really, to say something does, that does, that uh, that we think it just doesn't exist, it just doesn't really, does it, it's, it's kind of tautological in my opinion. Um, intelligibility, uh, as far as that goes, um, I don't like that term either because it's really ambiguous. Uh, a lot of times people are talking about being able to observe things and make conclusions. But as we know, that uh, those of us who have read Clark and agree know, um, you cannot you know, logically derive a propositional truth from a non-proposition. No, there is no inference in logic that allows for that kind of uh, thinking. So uh, as far as tag goes, I agree, uh, and Clark, Clark does not for the record. Uh, but I agree that um, that tag can be used in a negative sense to show, you know, as a polemic, to show that uh, that really, in order for the atheist to argue, he is assuming some things that are that are that are true if the Bible is true. I think there's nothing wrong with showing that. And the whole thing is too, you know, that you know, people who make syllogisms, Van Til understood that that in order to make a syllogism, uh, there has to be some sort of foundation for logic. Um, and he understood that. So he would even say, in order to make a syllogism, you have to presuppose Christianity. So really, you know, when you try and make tagging to a syllogism, you're kind of you're kind of not adding to the discussion. In fact, you may be detracting from it because you can get distracted by other issues. But yeah, I agree. You know, a tag can be used. Now I don't think tag proves that God exists. Uh, I would not, and I don't think the tag proves that the Bible is true. But I think it's a good way to show people, if you uh, approach it the right way, that uh, they are, there are some assumptions. They have to adopt some of our beliefs that are that are actually contradictory to the implication of their own beliefs in order to even argue against Christianity. And using it in that way, I think it's I think it's fine to use it. So let me go back. Uh, I may have misunderstood. You said Clark would not agree with what you just said or he it sounded like you said Clark would not agree with that. Yes, I did. I did preface that. Um, what, what he would not agree with is. Um, Clark did not believe that it was possible to show that all non-Christian worldviews would lead to skepticism. He did think that there, that there could be a problem uh, with, uh, you know, there would be allegedly a problem with a worldview that starts with a, um, a uh, you know, non-Christian uh, axiom. Uh, the problem, you know, um, he thought maybe it would be possible to construct such a worldview uh, that would be logically consistent, but he, he's, you know, but he just didn't feel that he could prove that any worldview uh, that is not Christian would necessarily lead to contradiction. He never believed that. But I think, you know, when you look at the Bible and you see what it says about knowledge and where it comes from, you know, I think it's very easy to conclude that uh, that 
um, knowledge does come from God and that if you forsake God, you're forsaking knowledge. And, and if you forsake knowledge, you're going to run into a problem in your worldview at some point. I think the Bible makes that very clear given what it said. Uh, but Clark, would, I don't think Clark would agree with that. I may, I may have a different understanding because I thought that Clark uh, did believe that all other worldviews would lead to skepticism. And uh, therefore, the, the unbeliever should uh, consider uh, Christianity. And I, as a matter of fact, I thought he even wrote something to that effect, uh, either in God's Hammer or in uh, what would be Volume 4 of the Signature Series. But, I'll have to um, get that reference because um, I, I have read it somewhere. I can't remember where it was. It was quite a while back. The way I look at it is, uh, you know, and, and I'm fallible. I could be mistaken. Uh, maybe I am maybe I dreamed it or something. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, uh, I, mean, I, I could too. I, I, I don't have the reference uh, on hand. And, uh, right, let me Google you know, it real quick. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull an atheist tactic. I'm going to go ahead and Google it. And <laughs> you, know, you know, and it's, it's really interesting because Clark wrote so much that I've read some of his stuff. I want to say like more than five times. Some of his stuff I haven't even gotten to yet, but he's written so much that you hear something and, and it's like, you know what? I don't know. Let me go back and, and I'm going to have to go to this book and look at my notes and, and see if, if that's what he said. But, um, but I, I think we're probably just going to have to uh, come, come back to the table at a later point and figure out if, if Clark really, if he believed that or not, um, yeah, but I, unless what's that could have been an alien that wrote it who knows right right i can't prove it but um let's get back to the tag because uh you, you were saying that it can be used as a negative test and i think that i think that i agree with that I, um I'm, I'm trying to figure out if we're saying the same thing um the tag can be used as a reductio ad absurdum to lead the other person's worldview to absurdity right how I would approach it is if I use tag and I have used it and I have, I have used it recently, but um, the way I approach it is I show that unbeliever said, look, and it's almost, and it's similar to what Clark does, but it's just, it has a little bit, it was a little bit more to it because I'm trying to show them say, Hey, look, with the things you're arguing, you have to assume parts of my worldview that actually contradict what you're trying, what you're trying to argue for. For instance, it's not possible given a naturalistic worldview to say that there are any, there's really any prescription of thinking logically. There's really no such thing as necessary inference. It's just a part of our imagination. They're assuming that there is necessary inference, but that's not something that really is possible unless you have, unless you have someone who is, uh, I, I guess you would say that has the authority to, de to, uh, to declare those kind of things are prescriptive. Um, so, you know, you don't have, you know, and that's really what it amounts to, you know, even, you know, when it comes to ethics in the Bible and logic is the way it is because it's the structure of how, of how God thinks. And, and of course, God's creation is going to reflect how God thinks. So really, you know, if, unless they can demonstrate that the laws of logic are prescriptive given a naturalistic worldview, which I've never seen anyone do, then uh, they're really, they're, you know, we can demonstrate from the Bible because we start with an axiom, the Bible and is the word of God, regardless of whether you believe it or not. Um, we can deduce from from uh, what is said in the Bible all the syllogisms that's used. The fact that there is there are valid arguments and invalid arguments. The Bible talks about both. Uh, you know, whenever they're dealing with in arguments used by individual people, they you know uh, there are uh, there are uh, certain inferences that are that are necessary, and you can deduce that from Scripture, but you can't deduce that from a naturalistic worldview. So so basically, because you cannot deduce that from a naturalistic worldview, whenever you're trying to argue as if there are prescriptive law, prescriptive laws and rules concerning inferences, you're assuming uh, a proposition that you just can't get from atheism, but you can get it from Christianity. 
that so, is an that is an excellent point because they're not they're not prescriptive they're descriptive right so because of that they're having to take on they're having to borrow from our worldview um as Sai would say and as bonson would say and as vantilla would say in order to argue against it now i think that's a powerful i mean when it comes to because they're not just you know you can be logically rigorous but there are certain arguments i think that get people thinking <laughs> Uh, and I don't think it's wrong to uh, use tag, you know, because the tag could actually, it could actually get those wheels going. It could think, you know what? He may have a point. Uh, I have to assume things that he believes that I don't, is that it, I really don't is that your, believe. Is that your dog in the background? Yes, that is uh, AC. He has, he had heartworms when I, whenever he wandered in my yard. Uh, oh, okay. I got rid of the heartworms, but the, but the coughing and stuff is still, uh, is still there. Just, just, uh, just so we know that that you don't have a relative who's choking in the background that you're ignoring. <laughs> well, uh, there, there's a rope in here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there better not be. Well, let me. Okay, so you're saying some really good stuff. Um, let me go ahead and let our listeners know that Joe Lanza has now joined the group, and I have to take responsibility. I totally biffed it on telling Joe the appropriate time. Uh, so that's my bad, Joe. I apologize. Uh, glad to have you here. Yeah, it's not a big deal. I, I, I think the time zone thing is a little confusing for, for the most part. Where I'm in Ohio, well, you guys are in Texas, I think. Is that right? Well, I'm in Texas. I don't know where. I actually don't know where Jason is. Jason is. Oh, I don't really know for sure, but I think I'm in Pensacola, Florida. <laughs> okay, so a, me you should be on the same time zone. Yeah. Uh, so Joe, uh, we're just talking about uh, tag right now. Uh, we we talked a little bit about Jason's book. Probably want to get back to that in a little bit. And then uh, if there's time, uh, I, I don't want to go over an hour and thirty minutes. But if there's time, I'd like to ask Jason about the article that he recently wrote in response to Dr. Malpaz, who wrote an article against me. So that that should be fun. Um, so Jason. Segment. If we don't get to, it, I'll be happy to talk about it. Although I didn't enjoy writing it all, it's very tedious and a pain in the butt because he made so many mistakes. Yeah, I never responded just because it it would have been basically what you just described. But you you uh, you jumped on that grenade. So let's. Uh, so let me give you an opportunity to just finish what you were saying, if you remember, or we can just move on. I was just reiterating. Now to reiterate one more time. Tag can be used even by Clarkians, and I don't, you know, and I really don't think any argument for Christianity is off the table as long as we have the authority of Scripture in mind, and that we're not trying to use it as something apart from Scripture to prove Scripture. But um, you know, but there are some arguments that are uh, that are, I think, more persuasive to people than others. I have found that there are some arguments. I have actually, I have actually even, I've been known to um, use a variation of the of the cosmological arguments uh, whenever in discussions with people that seem receptive to what I am saying. So you have to use some discretion about which argument may be the best fit for the situation. You know, and of course, I'm not an empiricist, but I do know that the Bible says that the universe had a beginning. I do know that the Bible says that God created the universe. You know, those kind of prop those propositions are, are there are some some things that, that have been concluded in, in um, empirical studies that are consistent with that. And I can, I can, you know, and I can, I can appeal to those to try and say, hey, look, you know, just like how Paul did in Acts 17, look, you know, looking at telling them about the world that, that God had created. But I would never use the argument to try and prove Scripture is true. That, that's my first principle. Uh, I would just say, hey, look, this also, you know, if you look at this, this element, uh, I mean, these, these things that we have included through empirical studies are consistent with what the Bible already teaches. And I think that's something that some people do react to uh, better than trying to, you know, because not everybody is an uh, analytic philosopher. Not everybody's going to understand where we're coming from 
unless we sit down there and, and just explain the whole thing, you know, uh, of Park's philosophy, which I think would take quite a long time. Um, but yes, I agree. Uh, we can use tag. Uh, we, we can use it as a negative argument to show that the atheists have to assume things that they cannot deduce from their axiom and that can be deduced from Christianity's axiom uh, that's, that, uh, and show them that they, you know, they're not being consistent with themselves when they're making their arguments and try and then point to the Christianity and say, hey, look, this kind of, these things you're arguing for are consistent with Christian, what the Bible already teaches. And, you know, you should, you should consider Christianity, um, you know, so that you can, you can get out of this logical conundrum that you're in. Okay. So, all right, for our listeners, I, I do have to apologize um, that Joe Lonzo was so late. So we are going... I'm looking at the time now and I'm realizing that I'm, I'm not going to have enough time to get into the, uh, the discussion on Dr. Malpaz right now, but um, I'd love to uh, have Jason Peterson back and hopefully next time I can give Joe the appropriate time. Joe is in a different time zone. And initially I set I set this up at nine, nine and uh, which is, 11.15 for Joe, and then I moved it to 8.15, and uh, I forgot to tell Joe. So, Joe, I apologize about that. But, um, Jason, I, I, we're going to have to uh, end it here. I'm, I'm looking at the time. I'm realizing that uh, I, I've got to get going. So would you be willing to come back at a later time and maybe talk about the the article that you wrote with, uh, uh, with regards to uh, a response to Dr. Malpass? Sure, that'll probably take an entire episode anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it probably would. Um, and uh, so, uh, so Jason's book is Apologetics Made Simple: Five Keys to an Unstoppable an Unstoppable Apologetic. And uh, I think it's it's uh, it's got some great stuff. It's very well written. I enjoyed reading it. So check it out. Be sure to check out the stuff that Jason Peterson has got going on. I think he's a solid brother in the Lord. I'm lamenting over the fact that he changed. He went from being a Reformed Baptist to being a Presbyterian. I think that was a huge mistake, and we're gonna have to we're gonna have to fix that the next episode. No, oh, Jason, no. I, I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, I actually, uh, man, I can't even speak to that because uh, I recently became a Reformed Baptist. So uh, who knows? Who knows where God is gonna lead me? But. You're not uh, like <laughs> you know, uh, it's funny because uh, Tim Kaufman's a Presbyterian, um, and I'm a Reformed Baptist, and I, I just don't know enough to even have that conversation right now. But I'm just, I'm just teasing with you. But uh, no, he, Jason's a, he's a solid brother in the Lord. He loves the Lord, and uh, you know, our goal at Semper Reformanda Radio is to, uh, is to highlight uh, other ministries where where we think that they're doing well. And, uh, and I think that Jason is, he's an excellent apologist. He's a smart guy from what you can, uh, from what you just heard. He's a smart guy. He's, uh, he knows his stuff. He studies, he studies to show himself approved. So Jason, I want to commend you for that. I want to say thank you for coming on to our show. Uh, thank you for taking the time out of your Saturday, Saturday to be with us. And Joe, I have to apologize to you. Uh, I totally biffed it, so please forgive me. Thanks, guys. It's been an honor, a pleasure, and and Joe has not said a single thing. <laughs> uh, he's probably, pr- probably mad at me. Um, there we go. He got something in. He he can be satisfied. Yeah. All right, then uh, we will check you guys next time and uh, be on the lookout for another episode with Jason uh, and 
hopefully we can go over the article pertaining to Dr. Malpass. So I want to say have a blessed week, and we will check you next time. God bless.